Okay, I think we're going to get started again for this next session. And uh, in this particular session, I'm really going to go more in-depth. You've heard me talk about the various roles that are out there and looking at the Guion Miller roles more in particular and looking at, of course, the Dawes roles as well. And my goal is to really encourage people to whatever is out there for you to just utilize it and hopefully your goal is to tell your family story. You know, um, I was talking with someone a few minutes ago and, um, and the fact is that hopefully you know that even though you may go to a family reunion and someone has a nice pretty chart on the wall, nice family tree chart, and other than the fact that a person walks up to a chart and says, okay, let me see if they've got my name on there. And then they say, oh, there's my, okay, they got my parents. Oh, okay, oh, okay. And everybody's happy and they sit down. And maybe the first time you go to a reunion, you're kind of impressed. Oh, wow, look at this. That's what I want to do. I want to get that chart. But the painful reality is for a lot of people, nobody wants to see your chart but you. Um, for those of you who are religious, some of you may read your scripture at night. I know what chapter that you don't read. I know you don't spend all that time in Genesis to read who begot, who begot, who begot, who begot whom. And in the next page, who begot, who begot, who begot whom. It's the stories that count. And it's the stories from which you can extract some of them when you're looking at the documents. And one of the key things, even when you're sharing a census records or a chart with someone, always keep in mind that one record can generate another record. And even if you're looking at a census record, you may see something where it's telling you a little bit about how long the people have been married. Well, that's pointing to you right there without a neon sign saying, hey, why don't you go and try and find that marriage record? If you're in a state where they collect a lot of detail, you might even find who's some witnesses who were members of the family as well. And the way you get that story is to look at all of the data and to look at it more closely. And hopefully you're going to start to do that as well. The challenge is real, though, for those I know who are trying to maybe document Native ancestry, especially from Maryland, when so many of the people who did remain, but they married and became absorbed into another culture. And that's just really sort of what happened in Maryland. But it didn't happen in other places, and there are all kinds of records. So we're going to look at uh, what exploring some of these records really can consist of. And I'm talking particularly about census records and tribal roles. One thing about roles is the fact that a lot of people don't really understand as well. Tribal roles are usually not the creation of the tribe. The roles are creations of the federal government. And oftentimes a list was created to sort of watch this population that needed to be watched. And the only reason they needed to be watched because it's all about the land. So it's very, very interesting. And I just say utilize the records that you have. The most common for everyone is census. That is the engine that's going to propel your research. They also allow you to look at people over a period of time. 
One of the things that I have had people come up to me, well, you know, my great-grandmother was full-blooded Indian, but they have her down as black, so what can I do? (laughs) Tell the story of what you found is what you can do. And I've had other people say, well, you know, they were really Indians by blood, but they were put on the Freedmen Roll. Tell the story. Tell the story of what happened to them. Tell the story of what they had to go through to get on that roll. And, well, can I have that changed? The record was created in 1898. No, you can't have it changed. But it's very important that you also detach Sometimes the emotion, and I say detach the emotion because I have found that so many people are very, very emotionally attached to wanting to be able to either claim or to be recognized as being Native. And it's a very interesting thing. So I see some nods going on. Have you seen that yourself? Well, it, it is very interesting to see that. And it's certainly, everyone has a story to tell. And even when I showed you those um, 1910 census records with, you know, five-eighths and one-eighth and all of that, well, it's part of the story to tell. But you don't have to feel that somehow you've been declared illegitimate, been declared inauthentic, been declared less than anything else. But I do see that a lot. And sometimes I get emotional queries from people. And uh, it is something that is interesting to see. But I would just say utilize the senses in a very, very practical way. If you have an ancestor who was born in the 1800s, didn't die till 1930 or 40, make sure you document that person through every census year through which they lived. Because there are stories there to tell. And the best way to find those stories is to... Pay attention to all those little categories that are there. Some will tell you if the person is literate. In 1910, they even tell you if someone was a Civil War veteran. That's pointing you to another record already to go and find out, well, what was their Civil War history and to go and see what is there. And all of these things are guides for you. And keep in mind, the census wasn't created for us. It wasn't created for us to do our genealogy. The census is just there to do a body count of people in a particular community so that it can be determined how many representatives they're going to have from that particular state in Congress. That's the purpose of the census. And, of course, years later, we're using it trying to find great-grandpa, and hopefully we can, but it wasn't created for that purpose. Census is also a wonderful opportunity to study the community. If you find someone whose name appears on this particular line in a census record, don't just take the yellow highlighter and highlight that name and then close the book. You want to look at everybody above that line, everybody below, the next five pages afterwards, and the previous five pages before. Study the community. In many cases, especially if you're dealing with someone, let's say around 1900, you may find a page or two before or after, you may find that person's parents living close by. So you really want to study the community beyond just studying your ancestor, which is why you want to note the changes. And note the changes in the questions. In the 1930 census, They ask a question, does this household have a radio? 
and they ask it, and you just check yes or no. And one of the reasons, because society was changing a lot. People were getting electricity more and more, but a lot of people did not have electricity. And one of the questions asked in the 1940 census was, where did the family live five years earlier? And why would they ask that question? Think about what was going on in the 1930s to ask that question for the 1940 census, the Depression. People lost jobs. People had to move. People were really affected by so many things. In certain parts of the Midwest, uh, uh, Kansas, Iowa, Oklahoma, North Texas, the Dust Bowl. And if you have never, ever seen images of the Dust Bowl, just Google Ken Burns' documentary on the Dust Bowl. It was horrific. And it's amazing. People had to leave. So in 1940, the country was very interested in looking at migration, had people started to leave. And we need to look at migration in the African-American community because many of us are here with our southern roots because of the great migration. And when you're telling that family story, and it may not have been as distant as from Oklahoma to Maryland, it might be from southern Virginia to Baltimore, that's still migration. And what you find sometimes in 1930 census, 1940 census, you'll see that half the neighbors all came from the same state. Then that is telling you also there was migration. And you find that happening a lot too. So you want to use the census records as well as you can. Now, also in terms of looking at records, don't forget, I've already said use those, those vital records. Here's Mr. Uh, Bray Boy's uh, death certificate again. But as you use census records and you're going to pull up some vital records, there are other clues. Whoever signed, whoever was an informant, you need to figure out who that informant is in relation to the family. How do they know what the parents were? of this person. They must have had a relationship. This guy, when he died, was in his 80s, so somebody knew the parent's name. Ah, they must have a close relationship to that person. So you really want to be able to study the records. We know, we've already seen how George Brayboy was listed in 1880, and we know when he died in 1938, his death certificate says he's Indian. 1880 census says he's mulatto. 1900 federal census has him designated as Indian on the record. So again, that's you want to study them through all of those years that they lived through. Now, a word of caution. Does that mean that anytime you see mulatto, that means Indian? No, it doesn't. And I've had people, I've heard people say that. Well, yeah, you know, they were really uh, part of them. They'll name whatever group that they, they um, uh, are saying their ancestor is from. And the only time they find them is only listed as mulatto. But, they, you know, that was a code word. Um, no, it wasn't a code word. It was not. Now, there could be a, a mixture in the family. But we all know that a family can be listed differently from one census year to another. You saw earlier where Sam was listed as black one year, Indian another year, appeared on a different kind of record. But no, there was no code word for Indian. Always read the instructions. 
the instructions for the census takers. You can go on Google and just type in instructions for census takers for the year 1900 or 1910 or 1940, and it'll pull up the code book and will tell you what it is. From this particular document from 1900, you'll see where they are told, write W for white, B for black, or Negro or of Negro descent, CH for Chinese, JP for Japanese, and IN for Indian, as the case may be. And in many cases, they did not ask a person, what are you? They would just look at them and decide what to write down. And so it is important to know that. And as you're documenting the family, learn the geography. Get as many maps as you can. Maps are fabulous tools. I love maps. And, um, you know, the geography and the history really go hand in hand. And also, if your family is from... Uh, a certain part of Louisiana, learn the early history of that certain part of Louisiana. It's very different from what was in northern Louisiana if they're from the southeast corner of Louisiana. So you really want to pay attention. And also keep in mind that the geography can impact the culture and the lifestyle of individuals. If you have individuals from the Tidewater area of Virginia and someone else from southwestern Virginia, Chances are you have a person who could have been an oysterman if they're from Tidewater area or the Eastern Shore, unlike someone from Roanoke who was probably a farmer, and everybody else was probably a farmer. The geography certainly can impact the culture of the individuals who lived there. And, of course, you want to follow them back step by step, not ancient history before you found them in 1940. So it's very important to do that. And there's some real challenges in terms of especially documenting an Indian ancestor. A lot of times the challenge is just the limited detail. Just, uh, well, we heard he's Indian. Oh, really? What tribe? I'm not sure. Uh, and again, well, but you can look at them. And, you know, they had that look. But sometimes it can contrast the family story might be in contrast to the local history. Now, sometimes, the, as I said, in terms of those challenges, there's also a lack of not just information, but there were no cultural ties. People took culture with them, at least for the one generation. Obviously, the next generation, if they're born in a new territory, they have been influenced by other things that the parental generation has not been influenced by. But um, it is important to look for those social ties and those cultural ties, which are very, very important. Also realize the possibility of slavery, of black chattel slavery, especially if you're looking in the West, and keeping in mind that there are some people in North America, in the Northeast, who were actually enslaved and eventually ended up in Puerto Rico and other parts of the Caribbean, and never to be seen back on the eastern seaboard again. So these things did happen. So everyone's not always going to document it, and, you know, it's not all about the hair and the hair texture, and, of course, there is sometimes that avoidance that I've mentioned. Also remember that every tribe didn't have tribal roles. There are plenty of people who know who they are. They are within their own intact community, 
And there is not some sage in the community that has this ancient scroll where everybody's name is there. No. Um, that's not the case. And of course, we know that some communities did not enumerate people in a thorough manner, as we saw with Mr. Baptiste and his family in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So it is important that we take note of that. And some roles were created as sort of a reparation process. The Guion Miller was a reparation. Okay, we're going to pay you guys some money. Everybody gets $133. Uh, man, woman, child, um, if you can prove that this is what you were. Some of them were for land distribution property uh, purposes, which is what the Dawes wrote was for, land distribution, land allotment. And then some were just traditional census enumerations that you're going to find. And a lot of the records, even from those records, uh, I think Ancestry has them, the 1885 to 1940 census records um, are basically just a traditional census counting the people who are there. And then some are used for enrollment only. If you're Eastern Cherokee and trying to enroll, your name should be on the 1924 Baker Roll. And if your name is not there, no matter how Cherokee you may be, and you may find them in another earlier document, not on the Baker Roll, you're not getting in. And that's why I say separate your genealogy pursuit from a political issue of tribal enrollment because you're going to end up in sort of an emotional uh, just a state of confusion sometimes, and it can be a challenge. Over 90,000 files, and we're going to look at, again at the, the issue with the, the uh, Miller rolls. I just find it intriguing because there are so many fascinating files and records that come out of that. And um, there were three treaties. Treaty of New Ashoda was the major treaty that started the Cherokee removal. But there were other treaties, 1835, 36, and 45. And all they had to do to get on the Miller Roll was prove that they were Eastern Cherokee, that they were not a part of any other tribe at all. And um, they were from either, if they were not part of a tribe, neither were their parents part of any other tribe as well. And uh, a lot of those files are on familysearch.org, which is free. That is the Mormon site. So you want to take a look. Those who were approved were, of course, obviously living in 1906. And they were living at the time of the treaty. And they remained in the community. They remained in the Cherokee community during that time. You had to always prove that. What was the proof? The proof was often another person from the tribe who came to verify that indeed you were a part. And you see the applications are quite fascinating. And you see all kinds of fascinating data uh, that you can find on the records. You'll see some, they're asking, okay, where are you from? This is from uh, Jackson County, uh, Florida, Jackson County, Georgia, and um, you know, asking exactly where they lived. And then they're asking, well, why are you claiming? And the person's saying, well, I'm claiming because my father was Cherokee. And he gives the father's name. And of course, you know, a genealogist is always doing the happy dance when they find another name. And, uh, and of course, you find that there's a lot of detailed information on the parents. 
that does appear there as well. And they'll ask you, well, where was this person born? Oh, this person was born in Alabama. This other person was born in Lumpkin County, Georgia, and on and on. The, the genealogical data is so valuable. Um, this was fascinating. Fal um, Moulton Harshaw from Tennessee, and there are quite a few records from Tennessee that you'll see on the Miller Rolls. And a person was living um, in Cleveland, Tennessee, and talks about, of course, um, you know, when they were born, what year they were born. This person's born in 1850 and born in North Carolina. And um, also, who was the spouse? What's your spouse's name? And their age, and if there was a tribal affiliation, of course, everybody's going to say Cherokee uh, on the Miller Roll. But also, again, you always get another generation's worth of data because you usually get the name of both parents, and that's often exciting to see. And they'll ask you, well, where was the person living at the time of the treaty? And this person's saying, oh, they lived in Cherokee County, North Carolina. And um, again, what's the date of death? The person says, well, I wasn't really sure when they died. And well, give us the name of all your siblings as well. And the siblings are given. Now, ideally, if this is accurate, if the siblings are living, they should have a file also. So each record can lead to another record. And again, going more and more into detail. These files, some can be very, very extensive. Some can be short, maybe 10 or 12 pages. That's considered a short file. But you can find some 50, 60 pages long because maybe there's something complicated. And also, you find people of interesting backgrounds. I think somebody's phone is whistling there. Um, and you might not be able to read it well, so I'll read part of this for you. Now, Celia Harshaw was speaking on this document. Uh, obviously, she was just asked about her age. Um, I don't know just how old I am, but I was a good big nurse girl before the war, and I live here in Cleveland. I'm the wife of Moulton Harshaw. He claims his Indian descent through his mother. His mother was never a slave, and neither was he. I was a slave. I don't know whether his father was a slave or not. He was born and raised in Cherokee County, North Carolina, and I think his mother was too. And she goes on and on giving some data. And what's neat about this, you're getting oftentimes a statement uttered by this person. These are their words you're hearing, not just person says they were born here. These are their words. And this is what's so amazing to see, and that's why you want to, to embrace these. Now, of course, you do find comments about them. And in this case, you see a comment at the bottom about the witness, about the person. Well, the witness doesn't seem to know much about her husband. And um, she, let's see here. She's not able to do any work, never received any notice to appear. His wife is a full-blood Negro, and I'm told by parties here that the husband has some Indian blood to a marked degree and that he has straight hair and black. Um, so you see some comments that are made as well by the same individuals who are asking questions. And, of course, you hear the person's words 
at the, you hear their voice. And okay, this is, is here a little bit uh, more closely. And um, where she starts talking right about here, I don't know whether or not he ever lived with the Indians as a member of the tribe. He passes as a colored man in this community. Uh, I'm thinking my husband was living in North Carolina in 1851, but I don't know much about him then. Well, she's talking about him during a time period they were not married as well. Uh, but of course you see the summary that, well, you know, she doesn't know much about her husband and all of that, but it's kind of interesting. And this is, yeah, you can see it a little bit more, um, what the comment that was made about her a little bit later. But the data is still very fascinating and you don't want to overlook this. And I'll have people, I have seen people who will maybe overlook this page and show other pages where the person is claiming Indian ancestry. Why would you overlook the page that has the voice of that person on it? That's part of the story. The case of Aaron Ector was interesting um, because one of the things that, again, they had to also prove that they were not enslaved. Even if they had been half Indian and had been enslaved, they would not be approved as Eastern Cherokee. And so he talks about the fact, uh, he had gotten a letter written in April of that year. This letter was written in 1908. And he's saying, well, you, you asked me whether my father was Indian and my mother a Negro. My father and grandfather resided with the tribe before my father moved to Cherokee County, Georgia. My grandfather on my father's side was an Indian and recognized as white people. My grandparents on my mother's side were recognized as Negroes. I do not know why my father was not enrolled in 1851. He was residing in Cherokee County in 1834 and 5, and my grandfather was also residing in Cherokee County in 34 uh, and 5. None of my parents or grandparents on my father's side were ever slaves, either of Indians or of white people. Trusting this fully answers your inquiry. I am truly yours, Aaron Ector. You find letters like this in almost every single file, um, particularly if the person was of African ancestry or appeared to be, then they were always getting a letter. And this is the kind of letter that was sent to them. This is a frequently asked question. This letter is addressed to uh, Sarah Standell, in Georgia, and they're saying, okay, you're claiming your right for distribution of the Eastern Cherokee Fund through your mother. Uh, why was she not enrolled in 1851? And you'll see farther down, uh, they cannot answer the question until they found out the answer to this one. Was your mother a white woman, Indian, or a Negro? Was she or yourself ever held as slaves? And were you owned by white people or Indians? And it's absolutely, you know, it's kind of bizarre to read some of these things because at some point you say, well, does this matter? But uh, this type of question actually still goes on today. If you are following it all in the news, any of the stories of the saga of Cherokee freedmen right now in Oklahoma, the question is, oh, well, your ancestors are on the freedmen roll. Your blood doesn't count. And so it's, it's very, very interesting. And um, it's called blood politics. And um, so I think someone asked earlier, you know, what's the, what's the opinion that, uh, about 
blood quantum, it gets pretty bizarre. And uh, so it's, it's something to see. Here is one from Burl Daniels, and um, he's replying to the issue. And he's saying, okay, uh, I'll say that I was a slave of a Cherokee Indian all my life till freed. Here's a true statement of my life as far as I've been able to trace it. Born in Tennessee, my father was Lewis Taylor, my mother was Elmira Taylor. I was owned by Richard Taylor of Tennessee at the time of my birth and was given to his daughter, Annie Taylor. She married Robert Daniels. Look at all this rich genealogical data. And I always tell people, pause, stop right there. Whether you are trying to prove the Indian or not, Look at the genealogical data. He's giving you something that some people spend years to find out. Some people spend years trying to find out, okay, if they were slaves, who was the slave owner? How can I find out that information? And in the middle of this Eastern Cherokee application, he's giving it to you. He's giving information about his mother, about his father, about who the slaveholder, also how the slaves were transferred. One slave was given to the man's daughter. He's answering a question that many people spend years to find. And this data is so rich. It's just amazing. And then he's talking about the, uh, the slave who was given to his daughter, Annie Taylor, who married Robert Daniels, and they were Cherokee Indians by blood. And then they came to the Cherokee Nation in Indian Territory. This goes on and on and on. And he's telling you the marriages of the slaveholder and the slaveholder's children and also his own history. This is absolutely amazing data. This particular application came from Tulalo, Oklahoma. And this person was also claiming Cherokee, Eastern Cherokee ancestry, <clears throat> excuse me, which the person did have. And of course, they're ending up on a rejected file. But it's very, very interesting. Um, James Heston was sworn in and not only gives his age, gives his street address. And of course, anytime you see something with an address, the first thing I have a question is, well, what's there now? So he's telling you where he lives in Chattanooga. And that first thing, I live 304 Spring Street, Chattanooga. Well, jump on Google and see what's there now. Is there a structure there now? Is it an empty field? Is it a building? Is it a warehouse? This was where this person was at the time they were going through this enrollment process. There's a story there to tell. And he's talking about his mother. Well, my mother was born in Blount County, Tennessee, and raised in Charleston, Bradley County. My father was held as a slave, but my mother never was. And it just goes on and on, just amazingly rich Data And I would say it's an exercise, even if your people are from Maryland, no ties to Cherokee Nation, just read these. What an interesting insight into local history, but also even national history to a degree. I saw a hand. You had a question? If the person was a slave or not a slave, does that disqualify them? In many cases, yes, but it's not necessarily their, their status as being enslaved. It was the presence of Negro blood. That is a policy. That is a policy even today in, in some places. So, yeah. 
And yeah, it happens. Well, of course, Negro blood in some communities meant that you were a slave, but not in all cases, of course. So, but, um, oh dear, what just happened? Did I touch something? Okay. Um, but a lot of times also that meant that in many cases the mother was enslaved. What a policy that is used often in Indian territory. Well, the child's status follows the mother. And if the mother was a slave, then, oh, no, you're going to go on the rolls by blood. Now, you had people who did challenge this. You had the Betty Ligon case, L-I-G-O-N. She was um, a Choctaw freedman. She challenged it. In fact, she started a class action suit of over 2,000 plaintiffs. It, was, it got as far as Chickasaw Nation Supreme Court, and then it was never held. She died, and the case was dropped. She was a daughter of Chickasaw, Benjamin Love, who signed the Treaty of 1866. He recognized Betty as his daughter. Her mother had been a Choctaw slave. Well, the status follows the mother. She's a Choctaw freedman. Now, what's the difference? The difference was about 100 acres that she was going to receive. If you were a descendant of a slave in Choctaw and Chickasaw Nation, you were going to get 40 acres of land. But in Cherokee Nation, if you were Cherokee by blood, you were going to get 320 acres of land. And in Chickasaw country, you were going to get 120 acres of land. It's still a difference. And the Creek Nation, everybody got 60 acres, whether they were freedmen or not. But now Creek freedmen descendants cannot join the nation because they're on the freedmen roll. And uh, so it gets to be kind of, you know, kind of strange, but tell the story anyway. And, um, but these things are so absolutely amazing to read. And it's a real interesting insight into a little-known aspect of American history. This is another page, again, of a record um, of the Crockett's, and you see this particular one coming out of Johnson County, Tennessee, and where they lived. And the person is saying, well, uh, they're asked about 1851. And the person says, well, my mother, who was half Indian, her father being full-blooded Indian, and her mother was a Negro. Are you married? This person was a widow. Um, she does not have the name of her father, though. She can't provide it there. But she gives her mother's name. And, uh, but, of course, they were never married. And this is also a denied file. And it just goes on and on. And some of these things are extremely detailed. This is another application from um, uh, Oklahoma. And what's interesting, I think that one of the issues today, when you hear people today always talking about Indian blood, because, again, it's about land and it's about money, this is, these records are over 100 years old, and you're seeing what these people had to go to, to just to get $133, which maybe meant, of course, a lot at that point. But here's a person now who is 69 years, 69 years old, and the person is talking about their life. And they were born in Oklahoma, and the person was saying that, oh, yes, yes, um, you know, I know this person. This person's already enrolled as a, as a Cherokee freedman. And they give the person's roll number and what have you. And she gets her Indian blood from both parents. And he starts to say, Sarah was the name, um, Sarah, um, 
Vanrus is the name of her mother, Sarah Smith, before marriage. And she married John Van, and she died 52, you know, she died about 50, 52 years old when she died. And they go on and on and on. You never get this data just by looking at a tiny census record. Here you're getting the role, and you're getting a full history. And, um, and this is just amazing. Uh, he was living with us until he was about 80 or 90 years of age. And this is such rich information. A person who was 80 or 90 years of age in the 1850s was born in the 1700s. And you're going back so very, very far. Her grandmother, Lizzie Terrell, was the name of her grandmother. We're talking about an applicant, and now we're even talking two generations back earlier. So it's really, really fascinating. And um, it's, you know, it's information that you don't even find this data on the DAWs roll, and this person had a DAWs number. They didn't allow the person to just talk as freely as they could talk on the Eastern application. Now, I mentioned the Dawes Rolls, 1898 to 1914. The purpose was to, to, to determine all people who were eligible before opening up for land, before opening up the remaining lands for white settlers to come in and form the new state of Oklahoma. And those records, over 14,000 freedmen received land allotments. There were men, women, and children who had been either enslaved or were descendants of slaves of the five tribes. And as I said before, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole nations. The cards, which are always the basic. One thing I will say, I was really excited. Back in November, Ancestry.com had a big announcement in Oklahoma that they too had scanned the Dawes cards. But the best news is that they've scanned them in color. And so you can see the DOS cards on fall three. You want to see the ones in color, particularly because sometimes on the black and white images, you can't always read the little notes at the bottom. But these point you to earlier census rolls. So not only are you looking at a record created in 1898, or in this case, they applied in 1901, they are pointing you to other records that were created before. And sometimes in black and white, it kind of washes out, and you can see sometimes on those cards more easily some other notations that are there. Here's one from Scullyville in Brazil Indian Territory. And again, you can really see some other notes that can be found. Uh, the note here at the bottom says that number five, referring to the person who was the fifth person, in that case it would be Reuben, Reuben James, uh, was originally listed for enrollment on Choctaw Friedman card number D223. D means doubted. They didn't believe him. They put them on a roll of doubted people. But eventually, I guess they found out the person was telling the truth, and they were transferred to this card. And you can see the handwriting is different. These people were written when they originally put them on the card. The numbers go in sequence until that last person is added. And after they went through the doubted cases, you see that they added the person to this card. And it turns out that this person was actually the husband of the first person at the top of the card. And he should have been on the card all along. And it gives you another hint 
to another record. For the child of number four, for child of number four, CNB, newborn, newborn card. And it's telling you to go and get another card number, and it tells you what that card number is. And number four, in this case, was the son, Henry, who had then eventually married by the time they closed the rolls, and they was added on a little bit later. In the Chickasaw Nation, again, these cards are all equally rich, and you can see some people were added. You can almost tell by the handwriting some people were added. And uh, you'll see that in this case, Susan's the head of the house. And these are her children who were added at different times. And there's a notation, which you can faintly see here on the image, but it says on the card that the husband of number one, so the husband in this case of Susan, is a non-citizen. So a lot of times you'll see a reference to what is called a state citizen or a state Negro, meaning they're just from you know Texas or Arkansas or Mississippi. They're not a citizen of Indian Territory. They're not a citizen of the tribe. They married an American citizen. And keep in mind that uh, freedmen of Indian Territory were not citizens of the United States either because they didn't live in the United States. And so, again, it's important. And you'll see that person number eight, who would be this person at the bottom, different handwriting, you can tell, it says that they were enrolled later when the applicant uh, was added later to the card. So you can see different things that, hand, that different hands touch the cards at different times. Creek Nation is very significant because a lot of these cards are missing. Someone asked earlier in terms of some things that are held um, and are not in the pro uh, public domain. Many of the cards of Creeks are missing, and they don't always come in sequence. So it's very important, and somebody, I think, asked about the Dunn roll. And here, in this case, it tells you that number one, meaning the person over here, was on the Dunn roll at one point, and her name is Dilsey Harris over here. But to find her on the Dunn roll, she was on the Dunn roll as Dilsey Corbin. So, because obviously there's a marriage that had come, come, um, that had taken place and the name had changed. So you see all kinds of really useful pieces of information. So it is important to really look at these. And in every single case of these black Indian records, it always tells you who in the household if they had been slave of a person who was a member of the tribe, they name the slaveholder that's there. And you'll see that in just about all of these cards. Okay. Now, Seminole Nation. Seminole is a little bit different as well. So, and one thing I'll even say, let me go back to the Creek card. One of the things, it's very important to learn something about the culture of the tribe, and when you're looking at something that's unique. In the Creek Nation, you are, of course, a member of your own family, but you're also a member of a town. And you may not live in the town, but you're a member of the town. And that is sort of an, a, a political status, a political affiliation that you have. There are quite a few tribal towns, and in Creek Nation history, one of the questions is, well, what's your tribal town? And there were three official 
black towns, freedmen towns that were considered official tribal towns as well in the Creek Nation. Arkansas colored, North, Col North Fort colored, and Canadian colored. Those were the three black tribal towns in the Creek Nation. So in this particular case, you see Dilsey Harris. She was a Creek freedman, and she belonged to Arkansas, not the state of Arkansas. She belonged to Arkansas colored town. Oklahoma, as you know, has more black towns than any state in the Union. And Arkansas town was one of the tribal towns in the Creek Nation. Seminole Nation, you don't belong to a town, but you belong to a band. There are 14, even to this day, 14 official bands in the Seminole Nation, two of which are freedmen bands, the Doser Barkas Band and the Caesar Bruner Band. And they will ask you, you know, what particular band are you a part of? This particular person lived in the town of Wewoka, and this is Caesar Simmons, and who it says that they were part of, it looks as if one was part of the wife and children, or the grandchildren were part of the Barkas band, and they were part of actually an Indian band. This is not, um, um, well, Dosa Barkas was a freeman leader, and this is person is a part of another band, not the Bruner band, but it's very, very interesting to see this. But in every, every Seminole card, you'll always see a question pertaining to the band in which they lived. And of course, you see here some other pieces of information. On the back card, they ask about the mother and the father. Look at this information here. You see that this person, uh, Simon Bowlegs, it says, died in slavery. So this person died before they ever lived to see. Their parent died before they lived to see uh, freedom. And they were slaves of Billy Bowlegs, who was a major slaveholder, big leader in Seminole Nation, and a very prominent man. The mother was Jenny, and she died before the treaty was made, and he didn't necessarily know about the mother's owner, but some amazing pieces of data that you find in card after card after card. Here's another document. Um, oh, okay, I think I went back there. Okay, when we looked at the Creek card and we saw Dilsey from Arkansas Town, and she was a slave of George Stidham, again, look at the information. March Coleman was her father. He died before the war. Again, really, really good information that's there. And particularly when you're looking at the heads of the house, you do want to see and, and zoom in on their parental information that they share. And if it tells you if they were on a previous role, like the Dunn role, it'll give you their name and their number on that role. Always something to point you to more data. I mentioned the minors and the newborns, and these are people whose names were added or who were born after the family initially applied. And in those cases, you'll see the information that's there. In the case, Alice Millett, who, is, who was born um, after March 4, 1906, and they're opening it up again now for re-enrollment, and they'll tell you, okay, well, to be eligible to get land and to be eligible to be on this role, well, the mother has to be on the role somewhere. 
and to be eligible. It tells you who what the mother's name was and how she was enrolled before as well. So just really, really good information. For people who are Creeks, especially on those missing cards from the Creek Nation, the old series cards are fabulous. And all kinds of good information. And this is fascinating. Remember I mentioned intertribal families? Now this is a Creek Nation card, but this is fascinating to see because you see in this case Charles Alexander who's there. This is Creek Nation. But as you see in this section here, um, you see a case where Charles Alexander, okay, is the son of Isaac Alexander, who was a Chickasaw, and Polly Ann Alexander, Nay Grayson. And she's a daughter of Jim and Jenny Lucky in North Fork, North Fork Town. That's one of the black towns. And, of course, so you see another, again, this is a Creek card, and then talking about Sam King, who was in the family, and you see that Sam is the son of Aaron King, who was a Seminole. And so you see a lot of people intermarried outside the tribe. These places were real close together. It's like somebody from Baltimore marrying someone from Catonsville. Sure. I mean, the places are really close together. So it did happen. But it's very, very useful. And you need to always get a map to see where these folks lived because it's very, very useful. There were earlier roles reflecting blacks in the Cherokee Nation in 1890. Keep in mind that the Dawes Rolls didn't start to 1898. 1890 was the Wallace Roll. And the Wallace Roll, even though the tribe does not use it officially in your genealogy, you should use it definitely if your ancestors are from the Cherokee Nation. And again, you'll see it's not as detailed. And there, um, there are some affidavits that you can find. They've never been microfilmed, and they're at the National Archives in D.C. But um, they were able to have their cases approved and put on the roll. Wallace Rolls was named after the man who compiled it, John Wallace, who worked for the U.S. government. And, um, but... Um, it's not used in any official way, but I say, well, I officially would use it in my genealogy. Karen Clifton role is also an earlier role and also created. Uh, this was really capturing people who were missed by the Wallace role, so it can be something that can be useful. Now, for folks in the East, again, here's a map of Maryland. Look at this map, um, which is kind of interesting. It's also showing you different parts of Maryland and where some of the tribes that occupied, and this is very old history, this is maybe around the same time that the Ark and the Dove got here in Maryland. You know, they got here in 1634. So these were sort of the remaining indigenous people, <coughs> excuse me, who were here. And, you, you of course, Nanticoke, you know, they were Eastern Shore, and they were there. But you had the Lenape, Susquehannock, who were in, I guess that's Cecil County area near the Delaware border. Farther west, and of course, think about the geography. What is to the west of western Maryland? Ohio is. And so, of course, you're going to have Shawnee and some of the other um, valleys, Maumee Valley and some of those other tribes were from there who were known to at least had a presence there. You're not going to necessarily find a village or anything, but there was some presence there. And you'll find the Tutelo and Saponi Indians are supposedly were in a part of southern 
Maryland as well. And of course, Powhatan, that's coming up from Virginia, the Tidewater area. And of course, that area still, still has a presence um, of families that were there you know, 400 years ago. But again, a lot of it's there. And of course, you do have Virginia tribes. Virginia has, what, six or seven state-recognized tribes today. And, um, you know, but sadly, there are no federally recognized tribes in Maryland. There aren't any. And um, it's, it is said, I guess, that so many left in the 1700s. I know that many did stay, but I have found people who were born in Maryland and enumerated as Native American, but they're living in other states in just about every case. And I do all kinds of things, tweaking databases. And I've yet to find an entire community, either a town or a little hamlet or something, where everybody was Native. There may be some, but uh, they were just not enumerated that way. So uh, states in the East, of course, since there's other states in the East, like Virginia, you're going to find plenty of Indian communities that are documented there. The same way with North Carolina. And North Carolina is interesting because you do have Tuscarora in the northeastern part of North Carolina, the part where it uh, uh, kind of runs into Virginia a little bit uh, around um, Elizabeth City and all those areas right there along the eastern coast. You have some Tuscarora. And you find those records usually in early, early, early colonial records when they refer to them. But um, at the same time, you run into people who today, um, you know, will say that they're a Lumbee. And the Lumbees have a, have a challenge. They have applied for federal recognition. And they're still going to have a hard time uh, because they don't meet other criteria. And other criteria, well, there is no Lumbee language. They're English-speaking people completely. Um, most can trace their ancestry back to one person. And the one person is white who supposedly, I've never done that research, um, had children with free women of color. And those women of color were of African ancestry. Um, their identity has been one of native ancestry for many, 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 many decades. And the ones in Robeson County you see documented as those who were captured on the 1910 Indian census, uh, census you see them um, documented as Croatan. You don't see Lumbee communities um, documented. New England, quite a few in New England, and you have everything from Wampanoag to Narragansett. You have Pequots. Um, some of you have been to Foxwood Casino. Those are the Mashantucket Pequots there. And um, um, so you do find uh, easier evidence in some of those states. And, of course, there are the military records. Now, you have the drive cards from World War I, and, of course, you have the code talkers from World War I and II, and it was not just Navajo. You had Choctaw, Cherokee, Comanche, Mix, what is it? Mescawi, I think it's pronounced. I always end up chopping up their name. I feel so bad. I hope nobody is from that ethnic group. Uh, Navajo as well, of course, that's the largest code talker group. And there was a small group of Seminoles as well. They were all code, talk, code talkers. They left records. Civil War is most interesting to study. In the Union Army, there were three Indian regiments 
first, second, and third Indian home guards. And in the home guards, you will find a good number of African soldiers. They all followed this man, who is Apokaleahola, who was a leader in the Creek Nation. He had slaves with him, but many of the Creeks did not want to join this rebellion. And so they fled into Kansas, a non-slave state. His slaves went with him. And when they decided to enter the arena of the war, his slaves were right there, and they were inducted into the Indian Home Guards. I've identified about 60 or so that I've just been able to pull out who I knew were of African and Creek ancestry. And um, the first two regiments, first and second, those were the two most active of the Indian regiments in the Union Army. Uh, the third was a little bit more disorganized. But look at all of the Confederate Indian regiments. This is a picture of a reunion of Confederate Indians taken in 1903. You see they're pretty old guys there, and they're draping their Confederate flag. In addition to the fact, look at all of the regiments from each of the tribes. It is not widely known, but every tribe signed a treaty to support the South in the Civil War. So you had the Mounted Rifles, the Chickasaw and Choctaw Volunteers. <clears throat> Excuse me. You had the Indian Home Guards who were mostly Creek, but you also had the 1st and 2nd Battalion of the Creek Confederate Cavalry and the Mounted Volunteers, also Confederate. You had uh, Chico's Battalion, also of Mounted Volunteers. Chico was Chickasaw. And, of course, you had quite a few of the Choctaw, Mounted, Choctaw and Chickasaw Mounted Rifles who served, actually came together under the Choctaw Nation. All were Confederates in the American Civil War. But they were slaveholders. You've got to understand that, too. And um, post-Civil War, rich records, rich records. Indian scouts, fascinating history. The Seminole Negro Indian Scouts, which was their official designation, these are the descendants of people who followed John Horse into Mexico. And they lived there for three decades until the Civil War ended. They came back to the United States. Many tried to get back to Indian territory, but they were now strangers in Indian territory. And they were like, mm, you're not our people. So they went back settled right on the border of Mexico and Texas. They operated out of Fort Clark, Texas. They became officially, because they were such excellent trackers and hunters, they became part of the United States Army, known as Seminole Scouts. And they, because most of them were black and Seminole, they became known officially as Seminole Negro Indian Scouts. All of their records are at the National Archives in Washington, DC. Fascinating history. Five Medal of Honor winners came from this community. And uh, they lived in Mexico. There are still a lot of people in Del Rio, Texas, who have cousins who live in Nacimiento and live in Coahuila province. And uh, they lived there steadily into 1870, but a lot of them just go back and forth across the line all the time. Most of these people who are African-Americans and Seminole, they're also fully bilingual. They speak Spanish and English very fluently. Officially, the Seminole Negro Indian Scouts served until 1914. So between 1870 and 1914, there are wonderfully rich records of this regiment that can be found 
among military records. This is another image of some scouts that are there. Pardon? Del Rio, about um, an hour outside of El Paso. If you go to San Antonio, drive two hours west before you get to Fort Clark. And um, one of the elders is still there, uh, Dub Warrior, who is, um, in fact, he's been in a few movies occasionally, Western movies uh, as an extra, but he's a direct descendant of Seminole Scouts. And the cemetery, which um, is on the National Historic Register, has five Medal of Honor winners buried in that old cemetery. I have to talk about Mississippi Choctaw again. Uh, they are so amazingly rich, and I've already mentioned them a little bit before, but again, you should really look at them. I love the pedigree charts. They are my favorite. And you'll see, these are interracial families. Um, I mean, you see in this particular one, I think it's Obadiah Brown, and of course it says that he's white, and it's uh, mentioning that uh, this person here, Rebecca, was... Um, she was half Negro, and um, maybe she was a slave there. There's some indication that she may have been. But you see all kinds of things referring to the race of various people in this pedigree chart. Um, I just wish any time I discover a new line, someone would give me a sixth-generation pedigree chart uh, that was constructed over 100 years ago. I mean, this is something that's rare. Very few genealogists get to see something like this. Again, this is an MCR file, Mississippi Choctaw Rejected File. All kinds of things. Some facts to remember. I always say define your goal. What is it you're trying to do? Well, I hope your goal is to tell your family story and not just to prove a racial composition. It's very, very important. Slavery was a major factor, but not every person of African ancestry was enslaved. And yes, people moved to the West, but a lot of people remained right there in the East. Many whites married into Indian communities. And yes, there are the complexities of American slavery. Whites, yes, were the majority of slaveholders, but five tribes were also slaveholders and held people in bondage until a year after slavery was abolished. And this is a typical slave schedule, and this one is from the Choctaw Nation. <clears throat> and in this case, you see quite a few Indians owned quite a few slaves. So um, you can find that. There are limitations. Not all communities are documented the same way. Tribal roles are not in every tribe. And again, some individuals were, eliminate, uh, were enumerated differently from one document to another, which we've already seen. Just keep all these things in mind, and you will avoid the pitfalls. And our next session, after this little break, we will talk about those pitfalls. Thank you so much. <laughs>